The year is 252 AD, and the ancient city of Carthage, which is in North Africa, is in total disarray. Over the past few years, a devastating plague has been slowly sweeping across the Roman Empire. The nearby city of Alexandria, which once boasted a population of half a million, over 500,000 inhabitants, had been decimated and now had under 200,000 inhabitants due to widespread death and a mass exodus of those hoping to escape the disease. The capital city of Rome hadn't fared much better. One ancient author records that the height of the plague, over 5,000 people were dying a day in the capital of Rome. Stories of this terrible plague had traveled to the furthest ends of the empire. And while modern epidemiologists are not entirely sure what the disease was that fueled this epidemic, many believe that it was most likely a viral disease that caused hemorrhagic fever. The most commonly hypothesized disease is something like Ebola. And the surviving accounts of this plague are truly gruesome, and we're not going to go into those details. But suffice it to say, once infected, many individuals would have two agonizing weeks until they slowly succumbed to dehydration and ultimately to death. So people were absolutely terrified of becoming infected by this disease. And terrified people often do just about anything to survive. All compassion, all empathy, all human decency just suddenly evaporate. And we have accounts from this time period that those who were ill were often thrown out by their own families into the streets. And once in the streets, they were avoided at all costs. Hence the expression, avoid like the plague. There you go. No one came to clean them or to feed them or to nourish them or help ease their pain. And even after a person passed, people were so afraid of coming in contact with the bodies that they wouldn't give them a proper burial. So gradually, the cities became filled with both the sight and the stench of death. And those were the stories that were circulating the Roman Empire. And every great city was terrified that their city would be the next one to get hit. And in 252, Carthage's worst nightmare became a reality. The plague was at their doorstep. So the, quickly, or the city quickly devolved into chaos Panic and fear controlled the hearts of the inhabitants. The uninfected residents of the city either sought to evacuate the city as quickly as possible or to board themselves up in their homes, hoping that somehow, miraculously, the plague would leave their homes uh, intact. Upon hearing that the plague had arrived and the city was in disarray, there was a bishop of Carthage named Cyprian who had a very different response. You see, in the third century in the city of Carthage, there was a small but faithful church. And though they had endured persecution and vilification and even seasons of martyrdom from the residents of Carthage, it had continued to survive and to grow. And the bishop of Carthage, his name was Cyprian, he convened an emergency meeting of all the Christ followers to discuss how they would respond. And at this meeting, Cyprian challenged the Christians to reframe their mindset. While the entire city of Carthage was uh, terrified and viewed the plague as the apocalypse, Cyprian challenged Christians to view the plague as an amazing opportunity to be salt and light for the kingdom of Christ. He inspiringly proclaimed what sublimity to stand confidently amid the desolation of the human race. And to not lie prostrate in fear as those who have no hope in God. Rather, we rejoice and 
embrace the benefit of the occasion that as we bravely go forth, we demonstrate our faith. He ended his speech by urging the benefits of mercy, by reminding the Christians that we overcome evil by showing good and by showing mercy like the divine mercy that we have received, by loving even our enemies and praying for the salvation of those who persecute us. And then Cyprian challenged his fellow brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ to refuse to leave the city and instead to choose to live amongst the sick and the dying. He said Christians need to be the ones who will step up as the nurses and the caregivers and the barriers that the city desperately needed. And many Christians courageously accepted his challenge. A small group of committed believers is reported to have adopted the title the Parabolonai. The Parabolonai based their name on Paul's description of Epaphroditus in Philippians 2 that says he is one who risked his life for the gospel. The word risk one's life in Greek is similar to the word Parabolonai. So they viewed themselves as the risk takers who gladly risked everything, including their health and their own lives, for the sake of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. And many of them even wound up taking care of the very individuals who had persecuted and villainized them for years. And the resulting legacy of the Christians in the city of Carthage is astounding. The city couldn't comprehend how the Christ followers are so courageous, so sacrificial, so selfless, and countless individuals came to a saving knowledge of Christ through the testimony of the brave women and men who accepted Cyprian's call to have the mind of Christ. This is one of those accounts from church history that demonstrates the church at her finest. While the city of Carthage was overtaken with fear and panic and thoughts of self-preservation, the church of Carthage was overtaken with courage and calmness and thoughts of self-sacrifice. But what was the difference? Why did the city of Carthage and the church of Carthage have such dramatically different responses to the same frightening circumstances? And the answer is that it all came down to mindset. It came down to their mindset. A mindset is a set of beliefs that shape how we make sense of the world and ourselves. It influences how we think and how we feel and how we behave in any given set of circumstances. The city of Carthage had a very secular mindset, a mindset that valued personal well-being and preservation above all else. Whereas the church of Carthage had a spiritual mindset. They had the mindset of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that made all the difference. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want to explore this theme more deeply. What does it mean to have the mindset of Jesus? If the church is at her best when the church has the mindset of Christ, then how can we ensure that we are operating from a Jesus mindset rather than a secular mindset? And our passage this morning, Philippians 2, powerfully answers these questions. So let's go ahead and read through our passage together. Philippians 2, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 5. Here's what Paul writes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To summarize Paul's big idea from these verses, uh, let's think of our, our big idea this way for the rest of our time. Paul is telling us that as Christ followers, we need to reframe our mindset. We need to reframe our mindset. This entire section of Philippians 2 hinges on verse 5. In verse 5, Paul says that we need to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. We need to have a Jesus mindset. And it takes verses 2 and 3, which gave practical exhortations for selfless living. And then he says, have this kind of mindset. It says the ultimate example of one who selflessly serves and humbles himself for the needs of others is Jesus. And then he unpacks the incarnational ministry of Christ. So as we unpack this idea, we're going to seek to answer three questions. What are the characteristics of the secular mindset that we are called to set aside? What does a Jesus mindset look like? And how can we practically cultivate a Jesus mindset in our lives? So let's take just a couple of moments to consider the first question. If we are to have the mindset of Jesus, what characterizes the secular mindset that we are called to set aside. Now, right off the bat, let me say that there are many modifiers. There are many things that we could use to describe a secular mindset. My list this morning is by no way exhaustive. But I think it at least gives us four broad categories that begin to capture some of the essential qualities of a, a secular, non-religious mindset in our culture. So here's the first one. Blind ambition. Blind ambition. Blind ambition. We live in an ambition-fueled culture. Now, not all ambition is necessarily bad. Not at all. However, blind ambition absolutely is. Blind ambition stems from a deep-seated need for personal success, personal achievement, personal recognition. And as we have blind ambition, we become increasingly blind to the needs and the feelings and opinions and contributions of others. It's all about what I desire. And if anyone gets in my way, they are an obstacle to be overcome and discarded. My blind ambition is all about me getting what I want. Second, a second characterization is personal branding. Personal branding. We live in a culture where increasingly... Everyone, especially those that are younger, want to build their own little kingdoms. Everyone wants to be an influencer. Everyone wants to have a large following of people that they're influencing. And your influence only grows as you have name recognition and outreach and some sort of brand. Our secular culture constantly encourages us to think in the category of me instead of we. Which means building teams and communities has been discarded in the pursuit of building our own little kingdoms and our own little spheres of influence. A third one that I can think of is called expressive individualism. Maybe you've heard that word, maybe not, but expressive individualism is the belief that societies should applaud individuals for aligning their lives with their deepest desires. So this is where phrases like, live your truth, be true to yourself, find yourself, or you, you be you, come from. Expressive individualism teaches that your deepest identity is not given to you by any outward influence, whether that be God, your community, your family, or your own biology. But rather, your deepest identity is entirely internal and subjective. Only you know 
who you truly are. And therefore, you must be free to express yourself in any way, and society needs to applaud and affirm your expression of your individualism. As one author puts it, the ultimate question for expressive individualism is not what is right and how do I conform to that, but rather, who do I want to become? Here's a fourth category of a secular mindset, transactional relationships. Many people in our culture are building relationships, not for resilient friendship, not for accountability, not for true community, but rather for networking and personal benefit. In transactional relationships, people expect and even demand that there's reciprocity. I want to get out of this as much as I put into it. People give, but they always give with the expectation of getting in return. And when someone doesn't have something to offer, when a relationship becomes messy, when it becomes difficult, I'm going to set that aside because this prequel quote is not working out anymore. And this is just not something that I want to put the time investment in because I don't feel like I'm being fulfilled through this. So what is the unifying theme of a secular mindset? Me. It's a very me-centered, self-focused way to view the world. It encourages us to constantly elevate our wants and desires over all other considerations. It's a me-centered mindset, and the vast majority of Americans are adopting this outlook on life. But here's the bad thing. A lot of American Christians are too. We have a very me-centered Christianity in the West. But how does this kind of mindset, how does this secular mindset compare to a Jesus mindset? And that brings us to our second question. What does a Jesus mindset actually look like? And the answer is the passage we read earlier. It's Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. In humility, Jesus counts the needs of others as more significant than his own. And this kind of other-oriented, sacrificial mindset is most profoundly demonstrated through the incarnational ministry of Jesus. So when we use the word incarnation, that's a word that we're probably going to be thinking a lot of as we move into the Christmas season. Incarnation is just talking about when Jesus entered into creation. So the Son of God enters in and takes on human nature and enters into creation. So Philippians 2, 6 through 11 kind of walks us through a short timeline or snapshot of the story of the incarnation. It takes this huge, beautiful, wonderful story and narrows it down to just a few key bullet points. So we're going to trace the flow of this and kind of trace the incarnational ministry of Jesus through this passage. So let's start in verse 6. It says, He, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Let's pause there for a moment. We have a little chart that we're going to put on the screen that also is going to help us think through uh, this timeline. So I want to start with eternity past, eternity past. And the first thing we see in eternity past is that God the Son, being Jesus, was fully God. He was in the form of God. This reminds us of God the Son's pre-existent state before he came to earth. So remember, the God of the Bible is triune in nature. Triune, the Trinity, is just a fancy way of saying tri-three-unity. So that means one God who has eternally existed as three distinct persons. The Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that's the triune nature of God. Three persons, one God. And each person of the Godhead possesses all of the same nature and attributes as the other. So before coming to earth during the incarnation, God the Son was with God the Father living in perfect unity. And John reflects on this beautifully in the opening verses of his gospel. 
In John 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is the Son of God. That's a title for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So God the Son was with God, and by his very nature is God. And realize there's some implications there. God the Son possesses divine status, and all of the rights, all of the positions, and all of the privileges that it entails. Jesus, from eternity past, is the exalted Lord who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Yet, what did God the Son do with his status and position and privilege? Well, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. These verses bring us to our second movement, the incarnation. The incarnation. These verses describe what took place when the Son of God came to be physically and bodily present on earth over 2,000 years ago. And simply stated, at the incarnation, the Son of God became Jesus, the God-man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And this is the section of Philippians 2 that is the reason we have included this sermon in our commonly misunderstood passages sermon series. Pastor Jeff asked us to dive into what these verses are actually talking about. Because throughout church history, there's been some great confusion and even division over what took place when Jesus came to earth. There are people that that have differing views on what happened during the incarnation. So we're going to spend some time tightening up our Christology, our understanding of the person, nature, and work of Jesus, and identifying and combating some unorthodox and heretical views that are still present within the global church. So right up front, I'm going to tell you, it's a little dense. It's a little theological. If you don't like it, it's all Pastor Jeff's fault because he gave this to me, all right? And then he ran away. So if, you know, send him lots of emails. He loves getting emails. No, I'm just kidding. Please don't do that. So, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a little dense, but I, don't worry. Even as we use big theological words, I promise I'm going to explain them. I'm going to unpack them. And then you can leave here and show off to all of your friends and family how you can use big eight-syllable theological words, and they will be astounded. Everyone loves to hear. I'm just kidding. Don't do that either. But hopefully you will come away with some new theological vocabulary. Um, when thinking about the biblically faithful and orthodox understanding of Jesus' post-incarnational nature, so after Jesus came to earth onward, theologians often use a big theology word to describe his nature. Uh, But no worries, like I said, we'll break it down. At the incarnation, there was a hypostatic union that took place. And that's a weird, confusing word, but essentially, hypostatic union is a theological category that describes the mysterious joining of the divine nature and the human nature in one person, Jesus. Hence, we can say that Jesus is simultaneously fully God and fully human. He's one person, but he has two distinct ontological natures. Hence, Paul says that Jesus took on the form, the nature of a servant by being born in the form, the nature, the likeness of a human male. Now, with reality to this hypostatic uh, union, there is a a mysterious element to this. It's going to be, uh, be beyond our cognitive abilities to fully grasp it. 
However, that doesn't mean it's not true. Scripture affirms both sides of this, that Jesus was fully God and that Jesus was fully man. So let me show you the first part that we can affirm from Scripture that Jesus is fully God, uh, fully God and attesting his divine nature. Here's just a few passages that speak to this. First is Matthew 28, 19. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's actually an interesting construct in Greek. Name is singular, but then there are three words afterwards that describe it. Normally, if there'd be a singular name, you'd expect one name. But it's the singular name of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Singular name is saying one person, God, that has, or, uh, that has three different persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this is attesting to the divine nature of all three persons of the Trinity. But then we also, going back to a verse we already read in John 1, John 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning was the Word, the Son of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God, and he was with God in the beginning. And John eight fifty eight, while Jesus was here on earth, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, we might read that verse and think, that's a very strange statement, Jesus. What are you getting at there? But what was God's name that he revealed to Moses in the Old Testament? I am that I am. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm the God of, of the Old Testament. And in case we think that's a stretch, Jesus' audience obviously got it because what happened right after this? They tried to kill Jesus because they said, you're being blasphemous and claiming to be God. So obviously they understood what Jesus was trying to throw down here. So we also see in Romans 9, 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever, amen. And then in Hebrews 1, 8, but of the Son, he, being God the Father, says, Your throne, O God, God the Father is calling him, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So if Scripture clearly states that Jesus is fully God and fully divine, then what does Philippians 2 mean when it says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? And what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant? Those are two questions that we need to carefully unpack and then answer with some theological nuance. So let's look at the first question. What does it mean that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Now, right off the bat, let me tell you, I think the ESV botched this one. This is a bad translation. And that has kind of added to the ambiguity of the verse. So uh, the word translated as grasped here, it's kind of a hard word to translate. It's something that Greek scholars call a hapex legomenon. You don't need to remember that word. No one's going to care about that one. But it's called a hapex legomenon. And that is a, a word that's only used one time in the entire New Testament. So it's not used anywhere else. And the reason that's a little tricky, we don't have any other instances to see how it's often used. So it can be a little hard to translate. To make matters even harder, this word is only used like a couple times in any Greek literature that we have in antiquity. So thank you, Paul, for always picking hard words. So those types of words can sometimes be difficult to translate. However, most scholars agree that when this word is being used symbolically, it's referring to something to be selfishly exploited that one already possesses. Okay, so our our rereading of Philippians 2 with that in mind would sound like this. 
even though Jesus already possessed total equality with God, he refused to selfishly exploit his status and position to get him out of the task of redemptive suffering and death on the cross. So what it's saying there is, when God the Father and Jesus were, were thinking about the plan of the incarnation, Jesus didn't throw up the trump card and say, I'm God, this is way beneath my pay grade. I should be worshiped, I should be praised. I am not taking on the body of a stinky, smelly human and going to die on a cross. Nope, I play the veto card, I'm not doing it, right? He could selfishly exploit his position as God to say, not doing this. Jesus refused to do that. Instead, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a human. He did not exploit that title. And, and he gladly humbled himself to secure our salvation. Now realize that this reading of Jesus being fully God, uh, and that we see clearly in, in Philippians 2, contradicts an ongoing heretical position that we know as Arianism. So from the earliest times of the church, figuring out the nature of who Jesus is, especially when he came to earth, has always been a battleground throughout church history. And there have always been people who come along and try to say, well, that's not really what Jesus is like. Here's maybe a different understanding that changes something about his nature. And we have that as early as the third century. There's a guy named Arius. A guy named Arius comes along and says, you know what? I don't think that Jesus was actually God from eternity past. Jesus is actually the first created being. And then God and Jesus together created everything else. So he's like God, but he's not actually God. So uh, his slogan was, there was a time when the son was not. And he said the son had a similar nature to God, but not the same nature. He's kind of a lesser God. Now, obviously, the church had multiple different uh, church councils that denounced this and then worked through a better understanding of the hypostatic union. And we would think that that's long gone. However, is Arianism still around today in the 21st century? Yes. All right. Are there some denominations that actually hold Arianism? Yes. Are there some that you probably know of? Yes. Jehovah's Witness, are, they, they hold to Arianism. Uh, Arianism also undergirds some of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Both of those view Jesus not as eternally, eternally God. So even though this is an ancient heresy, it still comes up today and still has relevancy. Okay, second question. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant? The word translated as emptied himself is the Greek word kenosis. And this word kenosis received a lot of ink in the past hundred years of the New Testament uh, theological scholarship. Uh, maybe a couple of you have heard of something called kenosis theory or kenotic theory. Essentially what that is, is in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there's a group of liberal Protestant theologians in Germany and England that took a new reading of what it means that Jesus emptied himself. It had never been in the history of the church, but they said, you know what, we've misidentified this word by Jesus emptying himself, what that actually means is that when Jesus came to earth, he stopped being God. He emptied himself of his divine nature. He, he completely emptied himself of all divinity, and he was just a human for that time period. So Jesus lost his omniscience. He lost his infinitude. He lost his, uh, all of his divine attributes, and he was just a perfect moral human being. Now, uh, 
However, we, we see that, first of all, this was a novel interpretation for a reason. The early church in no way ever believed that Jesus stopped being divine. But we also realize that if this theory were true, then that means there was a time when the God of the Bible was not actually triune in nature. That means our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, stopped being triune in nature. And that is a fundamental change in the very nature of God. And this is the same God who says in his word, I, the Lord, do not change. All right, he's talking about his, his essential nature and attributes there. So I think this theory fails to do justice to the many instances where Jesus clearly demonstrates his divine nature while on earth. His ability to know the thoughts of other people his ability to know the personal details of someone's life, like the woman at the well. His ability to miraculously heal, multiply food, walk on water, calm the storms of the sea, raise people from the dead. And for these and many other reasons, I think that the kenosis theory is an unorthodox claim that distorts the nature of Jesus in our triune God. But we're still left with the question, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? We can't just answer the question by saying what it doesn't mean. I don't like it when people do that. You have to give a real answer. What does it mean? Well, the word kenosis means that Jesus emptied himself of the positional privileges that he had as God in order to become fully human. He emptied himself by adding to his nature, not subtracting or substituting. And that's even clear from the language of the text. It says he emptied himself by, showing you how, taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself by adding the form of a servant. So while it's entirely proper to say that while on earth, Jesus veiled his divine nature at times and he veiled his divine attributes, we must affirm that Jesus didn't stop being God. He didn't become any less divine. Jesus veiled his divine nature, but he also accessed that nature and those attributes countless times as a demonstration and confirmation of who he truly was, the Son of God. So during the incarnation, Jesus was fully God. But at the same time, we don't want to underemphasize that he was also fully and truly human. Jesus didn't just appear human. He didn't just pretend to be a human. He didn't just inhabit a body for, 30, for three decades Jesus became fully human. He took on a complete human nature, body, soul, and spirit. Though he did not have the original sin or a sin nature that we do. And just realize why Jesus had to become fully human. That is the only way that he could be the mediator between God and man. He had to become the God-man. We needed a representative to atone for the brokenness that we've caused through sin. And the representative had to be like us in every regard without yet without sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And we also see many passages in scripture that attest to the idea that Jesus was truly human. It wasn't just a facade. John 1.14, the word became flesh, took on a fleshly human nature, and he dwelled among us. Uh, Jesus' human nature includes a real physical body that grew, developed, and experienced hunger, thirst, and exhaustion. Uh, in the account of the woman at the well, Jesus stops outside the well because he's tired. We, we he see that his body grows tired. In Luke 2.52, we're reminded that Jesus' human nature includes a real mind that grew and developed. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus' human nature includes real emotions that he felt and he expressed. Think about when his friend Lazarus died. Jesus had real emotion there. Everyone, that, everyone in the house probably knows this verse. You can say it better than I did. Jesus 
Good job, church. Good job. Jesus wept. We got one. That was good. And Jesus experienced temptation in every way that we do, yet without sin. And we see that in Hebrews 4 and Matthew 4. So we see that the hypostatic union, though we don't fully understand it, is attested to in Scripture and clearly on display in this passage. At the incarnation, Jesus is mysteriously fully God and fully man. So let's move on to our third movement in the passage. Jesus humiliation. Jesus humiliation. In verse 6, we see what the incarnation ultimately cost Jesus the God-man. Here's verse 6. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' humiliation, that's the next stop on our, on our diagram here. Jesus, the God-man, embraces his role as the suffering servant. Now realize the point that Paul is making here. Jesus, who is fully God, with all of the rights and all of the privileges entailed by that, he left his exalted throne by condescending to our level. He is the epitome of humility and putting the needs of others above his own wants and needs. Because just consider what humbling himself entailed. Jesus had a humble life. When Jesus was born, he didn't enter with great pomp and splendor. He wasn't born in the palace of Rome or Jerusalem. He was born to teenage, impoverished parents from a backwater part of a forgotten nation. Jesus had a humble beginning. He also had a humble life. He wasn't raised in prestigious schools. He wasn't raised in a family that was at the top of the social strata. Instead, he was a workman. He was a tecton. He was a a stone mason, not a high-ranking individual in Jewish society. Not only that, Jesus, even throughout his ministry, assumed the posture of a servant. Think of John 13, that amazing demonstration of what Jesus is saying, I am like. His disciples come. Their feet are disgusting and stinky from walking through the yucky roads of Jerusalem. They sit down for a meal. And what does Jesus do? He assumes the posture of a servant and a slave. And he goes down and washes their feet. And Jesus says, as I have done, you also do. Jesus is showing, I am the type of master who humbles himself by acting as a servant to take care of those around me in need. And then lastly, think of Jesus' death on the cross. When we think of the death on the cross, we oftentimes emphasize the physical pain that Jesus endured, which is rightly so. It was excruciating. However, we also forget that Jesus grew up in a culture that was different than ours. He grew up in a culture that was oriented around honor and shame. You didn't do anything that would bring shame on you, your family, or your community. And to bring shame was one of the worst things you could do. There was no death more shameful than the cross. It was designed to be a public shaming. Your, rip, your, your clothes are ripped apart. You're whipped, you're scourged, you're placed up for the entire city to see, completely bare, naked, so people can mock you and scorn you and deride you. He had a mocking placard above his head. Jesus endured a humiliating death. And why did Jesus do this? Why would he be humiliated in such ways? Why would he subject himself to such condescension? It's because he loves us. He came to seek and rescue the lost. His love for us compelled him to despise the shame and pain of the cross. He embodied the exact opposite of a secular mindset. Instead of being me-oriented, Jesus was entirely other-oriented. And finally, his humiliation not only secured our salvation, it was also the path to his exaltation. And that's our last, kind of our last stop in our, um, 
incarnational timeline. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every, conf- every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the name that's above all names. To the glory of God the Father. So Jesus' exaltation, Jesus Christ is Lord. He has the name above all names. He has the name of Lord, which is a public vindication of his kingship over all creation and of his divine status. So after the incarnation, after the resurrection of Jesus, he continues to be fully God and fully man. But yet in his divinity, now his divine nature is unveiled. Jesus has his full glory on display as he sits enthroned as king of the cosmos. Yet Jesus is still fully human. He's the first, first fruits of resurrected humanity. And in his perfect humanity, Jesus continues to function as our great mediator, our great high priest for all of eternity. Jesus is the exalted Lord of the universe, and all the universe one day will be forced to acknowledge this reality. All the universe is confessing Jesus' kingship, whether or not all within the universe have actually submitted to his kingship in their lives. But I do want to make one last stop, an often overlooked reality uh, on this chart. The hypostatic union will never end. The hypostatic union will never end. Think of eternity future. At the incarnation, there wasn't a momentary taking on of a human nature by Jesus. He is fully God and fully human for the rest of eternity. At the incarnation, there was a permanent addition of a human nature to the God, the Son. Atoning for our sins meant that Jesus would never return to being exclusively fully divine again. He is now permanently and eternally fully God and fully human. Think about that sacrifice for all of eternity. What sacrifice and what love? And Paul tells us that this Christological hymn is to show us just the extent that Jesus counts the needs of others as more significant than his own. He sets aside the rights and the privileges and the comfort and the status to seek out those who are hurting. That's what a Jesus mindset looks like. And Paul says, look at it, be amazed by it, be overwhelmed by it, and then ultimately be like him, be like him. We're to follow his example. So that's the third. How can we practically cultivate a Jesus mindset? Well, the two preceding verses to Philippians 5 through 11 actually outline what this looks like for us. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So I want to end by applying our big idea. I want to reframe the four categories that broadly encompass the attitudes and beliefs of our secular mindset with a spiritual mindset, with a Jesus mindset. So our secular culture is oriented around blind ambition, blind ambition. Jesus illustration in Paul in Philippians 2, 3 reminds us, do nothing from selfish ambition which means to reframe this, we need to recalibrate your ambition. Paul doesn't say, don't be ambitious. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. I think what Paul is saying there is, be ambitious, but be ambitious for the right things. Be ambitious for the kingdom. Be ambitious to outdo one another in showing honor and respect. Be ambitious to use your influence and power to help others, to serve others, and to raise others up. Be ambitious, but not about you. 
You need to recalibrate your ambition. Second, our culture tells us it's all about personal branding. And yet Paul says, do nothing from conceit. Another word for conceit is vain glory. This idea of puffing oneself up and wanting everyone to take notice of who I am. I used this verbiage in a third Monday sermon not too long ago, and it's just been percolating in my mind. So I'm reheating it and throwing it back up today. Instead of personal branding, we need to value towels over titles. And what I mean by that is going back to Jesus counting equality with God as a thing not to be selfishly exploited, he sets aside his title. He sets aside position and status and privilege to pick up the towel and be a foot-washing servant. In a culture that says it's all about titles and credentials and saying, I'm not doing that job. That's beneath me. I don't, no, no, no. Here's my title. Here's why I'm influential. Here's why you should care. Here's why I'm a big shot. Jesus says, I don't care if you're a big shot. You set aside your titles in order to pick up a towel and serve one another. That's what it means to have a Jesus mindset. Third, our culture is oriented around expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, remember, it's me, others, God. Me, others, God. That's how we orient. Me, it's all about me. If I'm fulfilled, maybe I'll think about others. And then I guess if you need God in your life, you can throw that in. That's expressive individualism. But Paul says we are to count others more significant than ourselves, which means we need to flip the script. It needs to be God, others, me. God, others, me. After the service, I was talking with Jim Messerly, and he said, Andrew, I was so excited. I thought you were going to go for it. And I had no idea what he was talking about. But he said that there was a, apparently a famous running back from the Chicago Bears that published a book, I don't know, in the 60s or 70s, that talked about a spiritual conversion that talked about Jesus, others, you, and it spells joy. So he took mine and made it slightly better. Thanks, Jim. But then he said, here's your joke, Andrew. You could say, the Bears finally gave us something good. <laughs> so there you go. Jim Messerly gave me my closing joke. But we have to flip the script. And then lastly, four, transactional relationships. In light of transactional relationships, a spiritual mindset says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. We're to cultivate compassion. It's not about my interests. It's not about quid pro quo. It's not about me getting what I want. And if the scales are unbalanced, then I'm going to kick this relationship to the side. Do you really think that Jesus needs us, that we have the scales balanced in the relationship with Christ? Absolutely not. Jesus absolutely is the one that's doing all of the heavy lifting there. And Jesus says, be like that. Don't just build relationships with people that can give you something. Cultivate compassion for the least of these, for the needy, for those that can't. So as we think about this beautiful Christological cam, and we even go back to our opening story, Though our world right now is not facing a plague, our world is chaotic and on fire. Our culture is self-centered. People only care about self-preservation. That, that is just the air that we breathe. And now more than ever, our culture needs the church to be radically different. But will we, will we accept that call? Will the church mirror the minds of the culture? Or will we respond radically different to our circumstances because we're viewing them through the minds of Christ? The world needs to see Christians who look like Jesus, love like Jesus, and live like Jesus. But will we answer the call? Let's close in word prayer. Father, we are humbled, incredibly humbled, by the text of this passage, being reminded of the great extent to which 
Jesus sacrificed in order to secure our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, that we are so loved. And as we contemplate that love, as we are amazed by it, as we are astounded by it, allow it to lead us to worship and responding by living it out. As people who have been forgiven much and shown much love, help us to forgive often and show much love to those around us. Help us to embrace a Jesus mindset. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.